So what I wanted to cover was um, a couple of areas around the idea of creativity and the idea of collaboration because it's a really big part of uh, creativity. So creativity I think of in four ways and it's to do with time and space and diversity and interconnection. So with time, the interesting thing about getting creative ideas, which is novel ideas. So innovation is putting them into practice. Creativity is coming up with that new idea, you know, putting things together that weren't together before and creating something new, a concept or an idea. So what you need is a few things. You need the time to be able to let it settle and meld. So very often, even if you feel like you've had an aha moment... What's happening underneath is the slow hunch. That's a beautiful term. And what often happens is it can take years for things to connect up together. So if you think about almost a a spider's web, that you're putting on new bits of that spider's web whenever you're connecting with different kinds of ideas, people, things, concepts. And so sometimes it takes a long, long time for that to bubble around and connect in the background. And your brain's really good at the real working memory letting you be day-to-day, and then the long-term and the mid-term memory and that chunked capacity in different areas slowly connecting up in the background. And also when you're in something called abstraction. So think about it like little um, octopi, if you like, in your brain almost, and they can be sitting on their own, and then every now and then they'll connect across. And if you are tasking, so if you're at at task, um, and that even means things like in a... A meeting where you have to get things done, so formal kinds of meetings, formal spaces, you will tend to go to task. And what your brain then does is it goes into the area where you push it into the area where you think the information is. But when you abstract, it means that you kind of pull back and you let the brain connect in a different way. And uh, so daydreaming mode is another way of thinking about it. We can actually watch under a scanning, um, well, various different types of scans now. And it lets the, the connections wander around in places where they're not normally together. So you need the time to do that. You need the space for a number of things. You need cognitive space to do it. You also need the space to connect up with other people. You need the space to share ideas. And you also need the space to be um, very sort of divergent on your own. What your brain loves, I call it caves and cathedrals. So your brain likes to to have big spaces where you share with other people and you kind of converge information, but then you need to go off in a huddle. So I don't know if you guys have been in creative groups where you've kind of had big big talks, but then what you automatically tend to do is go off into small spaces and think about it and draw it and kind of deep dive it. Then you come back, so you tend to do it four times in an ideation process. So you diverge, uh, sorry, you converge and Weirdly, you like big spaces. You diverge and then you like your little places to go. And then you get back again and you converge again. The information, you make a sort of a, um, make sense of what you've got in your brain. Then you deep dive. And that's when you also like to be kind of on your own. Um, or with small groups. So the other part of this is collaboration. Sorry, there's diversity as well. So we've talked about diversity of ideas. So you need to be able to meld ideas with other diverse people. But you also need to be able to clash ideas because you need to pattern break. What the brain does is create patterns of knowledge. And in order to have a new idea, you either need to add to that pattern or you need to break the pattern and remake it. And you can only do that when you engage empathically. 
because of the kinds of chemicals you get in your brain when you interact directly with other human beings. So what happens when you interact directly is, and some of you have heard me talk about this ad infinitum, so you get um, direct eye gaze, you get loads of different kinds of chemicals and you get you know, oxytocin, you get dopamine, you get serotonin, you get various things happening. And when you share space, you get a thing called dynamic resonance because we actually resonate in all sorts of ways. We even resonate theta waves. We, we resonate a number of types of chemical. So what you end up with is if you're in a space with a group that you trust, that you have humour and respect around, then up goes all sorts of chemicals that are positive for your brain to increase in speed and nimbleness, absorption of information, coming up with new ideas. And if you're really interested in something and if you've got a, a cause together, if you're really trying to do something, you know, that you've got, you've got a shared idea about what you want to do, then your parasympathetic nervous system fires. And you get a number of chemicals, but one of them is a very long chemical, it's shortened to BDNF, and that creates brand new neurons and dendrites. So what you actually start doing is building a new neural net. And you can do it as a bunch of people. So you have this capacity, and imagine sort of carrying around the, sh the same shared map of where you're going and what you're doing. So it means that you can be really quick. You also preemptively sync with other people because we synchronise physically, we synchronise brains when we're in the same space, a number of different parts of our brains. So you have this direct connection, you have these chemicals going on that speed up your brain, you have a shared neural net, and so your activity, your, your ability to be able to synchronise ideas, share, pattern break, um, build new patterns together. If it's in a trusting, empathic, respectful environment where you can have informal spaces and formal spaces, then what you end up with is this really lovely capability to, to create. So there's loads more that we can say. Um, you can ask lots of questions. So that's the start. Thanks very much, Fiona, and good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and uh, thank you again to the Don Dunstan Foundation for the opportunity to meet so many of you. Um, I'm going to be directly sort of uh, on the opposite side of Fiona's talk and give you a very practical, pragmatic, brief overview of how we tried to design for and build collaboration, and then we'll get Fiona to explain to me uh, retroactively, why that all worked. Um, so in the fall of 2005, we opened uh, the Mars Center, which is a large innovation hub right in the core of Toronto's Discovery District, so surrounded by the university and various hospitals. And when I think back, there are sort of five um, simple stages of building that collaborative community. Uh, first, obviously, as we approached uh, the opening of the center, we had to find the right mix of tenants. So the people that would show up every day, occupy space formally, and really be the core of the community. And at that stage, we really did this in a somewhat, based on a somewhat theoretical model of what we thought was essential. And our strong belief was that if our goal was to accelerate innovation, we had to have the whole innovation food chain, the life cycle, present um, in the center at that, at that base tenant level. 
We also fundamentally believe that diversity is the core of innovation and one of the extraordinary features of Toronto is its diversity and so diversity had to be designed in quite intentionally. And so we embarked on, on, uh, on from that framework and our, our physical center was, uh, had some very specialized space for laboratories and research facilities. So naturally it drew in science-based uh, research groups, science-based entrepreneurs, because it was a logical place for them to be. But historically, that group had lived in somewhat splendid isolation from the business community and from policymakers and from um, the creative uh, side and also from, uh, um, from I would say, the, um, the investor community. So part of our job was to bring uh, businesses, um, entrepreneurial businesses, businesses of other types, as well as uh, more established businesses um, and investors into the center and convince them that this was a good place for them to be. Um, the first few were a tough sell, but I would say surprisingly um, that we got that mix fairly quickly once a few uh, brand name organizations uh, uh, bought in. We then later added more intentionally policymakers and a few other uh, catalytic organizations. And on paper, we had the perfect mix of tenants, surprisingly. Uh, but what we learned over time is that there's another dimension to what seemed like a great mix on paper, and that was alignment around the mission and the creative goals of the complex, and that we could have a, a very, uh, you know, uh, brand name organization, but if they weren't engaging with the community, there was no point of them being there. And so uh, we sort of added this extra dimension of trying to find the alignment. Why would they come here? Uh, were they interested in helping us build the community? Uh, who would actually be here? Um, you know, would it be their, their uh, change agents within their organization that would physically be in the center? And how would they engage and was their definition of success aligned with being part of this uh, shared community. So that was the first layer and in conjunction with building that core, we then also had to find a way to animate the center um, in a much broader way, which was to get the community involved, to uh, make sure that we begin to host programs and events that would bring the wider community in, uh, make the center available to others to, to host their communities and begin that process of having the broader community who were not necessarily physically going to work there every day feel a sense of value, feel connected, and ultimately buy into the success of the center. Um, and, and what we learned very quickly is the best way to do that is to make the boundaries extremely porous. Uh, to the creative community. So take our programs out, bring the programs of the city and of the community in, um, and have an enormous host arts festivals. Um, just make that a, a, a creative space much more broadly than a narrow innovation mission. So that was sort of the second um, stage of, of, of that community. The third stage was then, and sometimes we refer to this in the creativity uh, language as uh, close ties and looser ties, we then began to build very purposeful programs for our core constituency, which was that group of innovators and entrepreneurs that were trying to change the world, trying to build a new generation of businesses, 
and uh, in a very intentional way build advisory support, connections to capital, connections to talent, connections to customers uh, for that community. And they became then very bought in to the value and began to be the, the sort of hot core um, of the community. The fourth stage, I would say, was to realize that even though this community was now starting to flourish, there were particular barriers that would stunt the growth. And that those barriers were not going to fix themselves um, just by the maturing of the ecosystem. And those related to uh, building capital pools that would go early uh, when projects were still very raw, um, finding the business talent to match up to the scientific innovators, particularly in areas like life sciences or biotech. Um, it meant uh, uh, engaging the corporate sector with the young startup community in a way that was productive and ethical. Um, and ultimately, it meant very actively starting to work with a whole range of other partners, utilities, hospitals, regulators, the education system, to become a better adopter of our innovations um, in those uh, tough areas where the customer is actually one of our own public sector services. And honestly, to do that was probably one of the hardest pieces of work because not only did collaboration now become an extreme sport, uh, we really had to up our tool set and actually build the tool set of the community uh, to work together to adopt and bring in some of these, uh, some of these breakthrough innovations. And then I would say the, f the fifth stage has been the stage of replication um, and networks of networks or, or getting to scale. So when we opened our doors in, uh, in the fall of 2005 for our first phase, there were no incubators in the city. The ecosystem was very, very nascent. And since then, we've seen an absolute proliferation of other hotspots, other co-working spaces, um, other centers, which of course um, speaks to the maturing of the ecosystem, but also gave entrepreneurs a lot more choice, uh, made, uh, allowed people to specialize and create specific communities of interest and so on. Um, and we saw this, uh, this community of uh, a network of, of hotspots uh, develop. And I would say, because it became very clear that by working closely together and working with the city, everybody's boat was rising um, as the, the brand and awareness of the city rose globally, uh, that became a very productive network of networks. In the meantime, Mars also opened its second phase, so we doubled our own size uh, to now having 6,000 people working in our complex. Um, and of course, because we brought in uh, companies from around the world, the network effects was just extraordinary. It's interesting that tipping point where you see the exponential uh, uh, connectivity. And we also realized that by creating a strong hub, we were able to work collaboratively with partners in the much wider region and in fact across the country. So after you've built that first um, physical connection and uh, physically collaborating in the same space connection, all kinds of other virtual connections become possible and are actually easier to execute than I thought would be possible. Maybe with just one final closing con um, comment, you know, I now think of Mars as a 
um, serendipity engine at scale. And we know from history that, that the power of serendipity um, is very, very critical in the innovation process. Um, and, you know, our role is to nudge and create, uh, create alignment of the parts of that community and continue to make the unexpected connections. The thing that is most rewarding today, um, you know, 12 years, 13 years later, is that the, the center now is an organism with a life of its own. So we have sports teams which we didn't create. Um, we have all kinds of uh, social relationships between scientists and venture capitalists who never would have met each other uh, that are doing things together socially um, that you know, wouldn't have happened otherwise. And that's where I think the true potential for human creativity uh, becomes possible. And, and we are at best an enabler of making those connections work. Thank you. Okay, so you talked about loose tight, if, if you like. So one of the things that um, the, the interesting thing that drives a lot of people is because they need to be in that safe space to be resilient and then start thinking about new ideas, um, you do need a lot of that capacity for flexibility, but you also need two major things, so, which is very much what you talked about. You need a very clear reason for being there, so an agreed on outcome, if you like, purpose. Um, and then you also need very tight values. So people think values are the soft things. No, they're not. You know, organising around values and sticking to what they look like is quite a difficult thing to do. But what that means is people feel safe in that environment. They feel like other people have their back in that environment. And it means you can speak up if you disagree, which you absolutely have to do to get good ideas. That's that clash. And it means that you feel that that still will happen in a respectful way and that it's a it's a positive thing to do it's not a destructive thing to do so the loose tight is a it was a perfect um, mm -hmm. way of thinking about it in that way it happens in normal organizations but for creativity it's it's very important so how did you go about deciding what that should look like well i think part of it was because our center the physical infrastructure was perceived as scientifically specialized. Um, we had to, but we, un, we knew that we needed these other actors to feel safe and to feel that there was uh, a point for them being there. So, so we defined very intentionally the mission of you know, growing the economic and social prosperity of our country and taking the ingenuity of Canadians out into the world um, as a kind of a core mission, which of course creates, you know, an opportunity for many others to participate, not just the scientists at the front end of that story. But we had to be quite intentional of creating comfortable on-ramps for other groups and creating that safe space um, for them to participate, but also to where they would feel valued and where they would receive value because ultimately, you know, time is of, of the most valuable commodity for creative people. So, so them spending time and potentially doing this hard work of bridging to other groups had to find some point of alignment. And so um, it's been interesting how we've been able to try and create 
topics around which very diverse groups could align. Um, and sometimes they could be quite close to the core of our work. You know, how would automation impact workplaces of the future? Would bring in the utility sector and the health sector and the banks um, and the manufacturers because this is a topic that impacts everybody. So, but, but creating very intentional on-ramps for the loose ties to develop naturally and then, you know, creating more cohesion around the work um, in the mission and being very, very clear that it's a values-driven organization, which I totally agree with you. I think people underestimate um, the importance of using the purpose of the organization as a way to draw in more participants, but ultimately to unleash their creativity to its full potential. Right. One of the things people think about, and I'll just make that point, and then we'll, um, you can ask a question. One of the things that people think about very often is, is they'll just say, I want to be creative. So I'll go to organisations and they'll say, we have creative groups or we have innovation um, roundtables and we have that sort of thing. And when you actually start talking to them, because they say, oh, it's going really well. Okay, so what are you innovating around? What are people being creative about? And eventually they'll kind of say, well, uh, the colour of the beans, because it becomes really difficult to actually quantify how the creativity increases. But what happens is they basically say, be creative. So if we were to sit here and, and, and Ilsa and I were to say to you, for the next minute we want you to be creative and then tell, you what, tell us what you come up with, you wouldn't really come up with very much. But what, what Ilsa's talking about is bounding. So the brain needs a boundary around a concept. And then once you bound something and you say, we want you to be creative around and a specific topic, then immediately if we sat here and said, how would we be creative around... Um, I think we talked about keeping cars out of the mile of Adelaide, go, immediately you would start. And it's because it gives it a boundary and a structure. And then what the brain then does, if you then don't try and immediately go to task, you just allow the brain to think about it, it actually starts collecting bits of information from all different chunked regions because we don't... We don't stratify information neatly. We know it's, it's all over the place. But the brain knows where it is. So then it starts to collect it and it starts to put it into this new kind of structure. So you have to be... that is Again, it's a loose, tight structure. You have to have something to steer against and then inside that you can get really creative. But the other side of that is what you said around having something for people to come to. So one of the fascinating things I think about Mars, it's, apart from the fact it looks beautiful, is the few places where they have really lovely, very obvious creativity and innovation centres, once you start getting people coming in from outside, one of the reasons they can do that is because, again, our brain thinks very much in pictures and patterns. And so it can actually... It thinks of Mars as creativity. Mm -hmm. So it's got something to actually, you know, be, be very specific about. So it means that they also can come to you more because there's a picture in their heads about that's what you do when you want to be creative. So places like Barcelona, there's a few places that do that really, really mm -hmm. well. And it's because, again, of how we think. Um, and we, we create that picture, we create that map. It becomes really much more easy to, to go to that process. Yeah, and I think what I tried to uh, just highlight is, 
you know, when we opened our door, we had no legitimacy as a place of creativity, right? It was a project that was plonked in an ecosystem. Um, it had no life to it. And, um, and it was really the process of, of populating it and, and, you know, creating these uh, doors and then starting to show results. Um, but at the core of that was a sense of purpose and a sense of value. Um, and then you start to see the flywheel effect, which is really quite profound. Um, and you're absolutely right. People then become associated, you know, they associate you with a certain uh, way of working. Um, and that gives you, of course, more permission to push the boundaries and put even tougher problems on the table. Um, and, um, and they also are a little bit more prepared to work through the the challenging thing of, you know, I mean, we talk about diversity is essential for innovation, but it's hard. Um, and it's particularly hard when you're trying to not just bring diverse group of people and not just go to the lowest common denominator of intersectional interest. Um, you're actually trying to draw on the best expertise from scientists, from policymakers, from business leaders, from the community, and find true solutions to tough problems. You have to have people prepared to do the work um, and take the time and build the trust in the group so that, you know, um, creating that legitimacy and that sense of a place where you want to do that and it's worthwhile spending your time, um, I think is very important. Well, there's a couple of things there too. That's, it's, we could talk all day. The, the, so one of the interesting things about diversity that we get wrong, whether it's creativity or all sorts of other things, is, is we, we look at diversity first. And what we say is we have to build this diversely. We have to have a diverse group. What you do is you get a very clear idea about what, you, you know, what the purpose is. And then you allow anything, no matter how diverse, to come in and be part of that. So, but what you find is the alignment is there. Mm -hmm. about the sense of purpose and about how you're going to think. So the fact that you can get that permission is actually because when you've got, again, when you've got all those excitements, sort of chemicals, parasympathetic nervous system and all that kind of thing, then another thing that happens, apart from being faster and more creative, is we have less resistance to new ideas. We can try new things, we step into that kind of space, but it's also because we feel we trust the other people because everybody is in that same value set. Yeah. And it actually cues your brain. So you almost step into Mars and you, you cue into that way of thinking. So it's very efficient and effective and fast. Your brain switches into that way of working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the alignment around the problem that we all care about, but we bring a very diverse set of capabilities, networks and so on, I think is the, is the core of, of uh, being efficient in that process. So one of the things that um, really good innovative um, creative hubs do is they allow information to be shared, stored, rewarded. How do you go about information? <laughs> oh, multiple ways. I mean, it's, uh, it's, a very, it's a very challenging actual topic just because there's so much of it <laughs> aside from anything else. So we've created sort of information and data clusters around the key areas of work. So there's a, a, a data and information group in health. There's a data and information group in energy. There's one in education. There's an overall one. Um, we have very intentional open source um, 
uh, collaborative activity, particularly in one of the toughest areas, and honestly, it's almost a cultural um, thing we're forcing through. We have one of the world's biggest open source drug development centers right in the heart of our complex. And it, it's interesting how that just changes the way people think about proprietary information. Um, but you know, the, the data and information infrastructure is obviously widely shared among the people in the network and that we don't try to control. But trying to create um, structured data centers where actors can participate in sharing their data, using the data, under the appropriate privacy and security conditions. Uh, we've actually had to invest quite significantly to create those pools. But of course now it allows all kinds of other things to happen. For example, and I know it's a topic of interest here, we have a, the new Vector Institute, which is a machine learning and artificial intelligence institute that's located in our center. And, um, and we are very, very actively working with them to bring together the data pools that can be used both for research and for uh, applied, um, um, applied usage. Yes. Um, so there's a couple of things, again, in creative hubs um, around information structure. So a couple of the, the, the structures that you need to put in, and they are expensive and they're difficult, is the to be able to take information in so that people have the capacity to pull it out again where they need it, when they need it, the way they need it. Um, and so often people build their own very complex structures. But one of the interesting things too in a lot of places, so, so I was involved in a pharmaceutical um, hub and what we noticed was people were not sharing. They had great ideas, very often at two in the morning, you know, at, at work or in canteens, and we could get to that. Because um, I have a, a huge, a, a lot of interest around microbiome and when you're, when you're eating the extra chemicals that actually make you creative. It's why every hub I've ever seen has shared eating areas. Um, and what, so what we noticed was that they didn't, that they wouldn't share the information publicly because they might lose that that idea because there were still rewards in that system for whoever came up with those ideas. So they created a communication and data system that allowed, um, as soon as it was my idea at two in the morning, when I put it into the system, it tagged me. And then whoever else looked at it and changed it, it tagged them. And what you got was an open source but very obvious trail. So I never lost the, the identification of being the one that started that idea. And it meant that people could, could go into that and it worked beautifully. Suddenly we got this explosion of work on ideas of all sorts. And that's worked, well I've used that in non-creative um, situations as well in many organizations. So I would do that if I were you, no matter what you're running. Yes, I would just say, you know, and this is um, having some scars in this effect, we also have to be realistic that um, the patent system and the, the development system of uh, pharmaceuticals in particular, medical devices, other advanced engineering solutions is still very much uh, based on proprietary technology. And uh, I think Canadians, for one, have been somewhat naive around um, fully protecting uh, their intellectual property. So there is a boundary between what can be shared and what must be absolutely protected. 
And so we've had to design our spaces to have co-working spaces which are open, data systems that are open, and allow for uh, proprietary protection of uh, intellectual property in, in science and engineering domains. And, and be very sophisticated about that. So that's another capability that had to be built. Because once you've actually been able to protect your intellectual property, all kinds of other collaboration models on the business model side become possible. But you have, as a small entity, you have no negotiating power unless you've protected your initial IP. So protecting it doesn't mean you can't collaborate. It's just the point of transition between uh, the protection and new partnerships. There's a, a slide that I use sometimes, which is, where is your elephant, which sounds ridiculous, but it's an elephant on a tightrope. And what it basically says is if, you've, if the elephant's right up one end, then you are too tight. You don't have that absorptive capacity of getting information from outside. And what that means is you will be really slow in being able to be nimble because you're not feeding it out any, at, at all. But on the other hand, if, you're, if your elephant's right up the other end and you're giving everything away, then you do exactly that. You give everything away. So you end up with no skills because you outsource everything. You lose capacity. You don't build those beautifully rich skills. So you've got to be balanced. You've got to think about how much do I put in and out and how much, you know, how good am I at getting information in from outside and putting it out, um, and out from inside? And also, um, what am I building up here and what, am I, when, what do I protect and what do I not protect? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, so eating. I just have a, I have a really <laughs> personal idea about, about that. Um, so what happens with people's social areas and especially eating areas? Yeah, eating is very, very important, and uh, you know sometimes wine is also required. So, um, so as part of our centers, we center we have uh, you know a range of eating places, um, um, restaurants, uh, coffee shops, all of those different uh, things, and then we have uh, shared eating spaces where people can just bring their food. And of course, uh, Toronto is a very because of its diversity, it has wonderful food. So. Um, our, the population of our center, not surprisingly, is extremely young. So a lot of people have, uh, you know, all kinds of exciting food delivered, and then they go to the shared spaces and create communal tables and, and eat together. So we also have some very cool microbiome research. So uh, uh, all of that, uh, all of that sort of goes together. No, I totally agree with you. And creating those common spaces where people in the center can uh, hang out but also people from the outside could come and, and uh, share their lunch. So um, our center is four buildings, and it's ar arranged around a big common um, atrium, which is filled with people all day long. And then we have some um, shared uh, you know, spaces where people can inside parts of the building, sub-communities can aggregate. Um, and that's particularly important in the, in the wintertime, of course, when Canadians are inside a lot. So there's a couple of scientific aspects to that. One is the brain is much better at creative ideation in, a, in, in an abstractive process in an informal space. So again, if you're in a meeting which is formal and you have tasks and you have agenda items, what your brain will do is have a different pattern of the way that it uses the data and the information. Once you're in that informal space, whether it's the coffee or the lunch or the, the pub afterwards, whatever it is, you'll notice that when you then sit down and relax and start to talk, that's very often when you come up with the ideas or the ideas come flow from that. And it's, again, because 
not only do you have an abstractive process happening in your brain, so it's, it's quite different. It's much more able to wander around and, and collect stuff that might be interesting. But there is. There is some nascent information, and I might be going to Mars to look at this, um, because we know that the brain is, is the second brain is the gut. Uh, we know that it makes many of our neurotransmitters. It makes a huge amount of our serotonin. It makes all sorts of things that then get pushed up um, through the vagal nerve to the brain and actually make the brain work. There are a number of chemicals that occur um, and are given off when you eat and when you eat together with other people that, again, enhance that capacity to come up with new ideas because of the mix of chemicals and the way that various uh, sympathetic and different types of nervous systems start to activate. So it's a really fascinating area. And every, I think every hub I've seen that's good right through Europe and, and um, Scandinavia and America has a shared eating space. You know, I got a lesson in, uh, about that quite early in my career. I did a, a PhD in Oxford um, in chemistry. And... Um, there was this practice, which I grew up in South Africa, I thought was the quaintest, weirdest thing, that at four o'clock in the afternoon, everybody from the entire chemistry complex would, would come together in this very old, round, previously used as a fume hood, so it's like a you know hat, um, and have tea for 45 minutes. And it would include the Nobel Prize winners, the graduate students, and everybody talked to each other. And over the four years I was there, more interesting ideas came out of tea um, in the afternoon than anybody standing with their smelly chemicals at their bench. So um, it made such an impression on me. It's uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. And there's a really good scientific basis. Good scientific basis. Good scientific basis. Good scientific basis.